chapter 8. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to eating, the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all thing are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Well, however, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that, that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who has knowledge eating in an, in an idol's temple, he will not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when, when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for uh, bringing us here together as, as your people, that we might worship you, the one true God, and pray that you would um, just be with Mark now as he opens your word to us, your truth. Pray that you would give us um, open ears and open hearts to, to hear your truths, and that you would equip us to do your your will as we go out from this place. Amen. Amen. Uh, just to get out of the way, I have an inflamed Achilles, and I can either have my Achilles completely snipped off and have surgery, or I can just wear a boot for a week and it'll be fine. So I'm fine. It's just I'm getting old and I have arthritis everywhere. So no questions, no concerns. I'll be fine. And if not, I'll still be fine. It's not a big deal. So anyway, moving on to the Bible. We get the opportunity to read God's Word. And then you sit here and you go, okay, we're not eating food offered to idols. It's not an issue that I have. Well, the beauty of God's Word is that, yes, that, that may be something that we're not dealing with in our culture. We don't, we don't have temples everywhere where there's food and stuff. But that does not mean that it does not apply to our life. There is a general general truth, a general understanding from this passage that we can take, that God gives us to teach us as God's people who He is and how we should respond to Him. And so, so this passage, like the rest of 1 Corinthians, this is actually addressed to Christians, to the church. And we have to remember that, especially when we're talking about what we're going to be talking about today, because we can easily then just make it say whatever we want, or we get mad because, you know, there's a part that's missing, um, particularly when it comes to love. Like, well, what about loving other people? Okay, the Bible talks about that, but this particular passage is speaking directly towards believers, towards Christians, towards the church who have believed in the gospel 
and how they interact together, not so much how are they interacting with the culture around them. He does deal with that, obviously we've talked about it in the past, but it's always important to keep in mind the context of the book, the context of the passage in the book that it's actually written in, because we have a tendency to read our own meaning, our own thoughts, our own lives, our own emotions into a written text. So in other words, how often have you taken an email out of context? And so you respond to it, and then you realize that was not what was meant by the original email, and now I have to apologize for what I said, because it was probably read into wrongly, right? We just, we have a tendency to do that. Well, 1 Corinthians 8 is surrounded by passages dealing with speaking and living out the gospel message. The gospel message is the good news. We're all sinners, and we can't be good enough in the eyes of God to to be able to be in His presence forever. So something has to happen, and God saves us by sending His Son, Jesus Christ, to willingly die upon the cross for our sins. He then buys us back. He redeems us. He saves us from sin and death. And then he shows his grace to us and he forgives us if we repent our sins to him and he, he gives us eternal life in his presence forever. That's the gospel message. And that's what we are called as Christians. We're, we're to deal or we're to speak and to live out that gospel message. Our lives are to be lived in light of the truth of the gospel by grace, by faith, by Christ alone nothing else. And so the gospel has to be central to our understanding of this passage. It cannot be divorced from it. In the context of the whole book of 1 Corinthians, he speaks of the, basically the purity of the church, um, that the church is to live countercultural than the world around them. The, the church should look different than the culture that the church is in. And purity here means faithfulness to the desires and commands of God, not a racial purity or a cultural purity. Don't, when Bible talks about that here, it's purity to the word. If this is God's word, and it is, and it is his word to us, then God is revealing himself through this. So if we disagree with something in this, the problem does not lie with the passage and it does not lie with God. It lies with us. Either we are thinking wrongly about it or we've misunderstood it. Usually it's the first, (laughs) that we don't like it. God says, do this, but eh, I don't really want to do that. That that is what this passage is is today. It can definitely move in that direction. But our desire as God's church is to remain pure and faithful to God's commands, to His will, to His desires. And so the faithful countercultural life of the church is also central to us understanding this passage. Now, there's one major, well, two major themes, really, but that are running through this chapter, and it's repeated a couple times with one word, uh, with, with twice with one word, two or three times, and then another word 11 times, and if you've been a part of our times ever getting through Scripture, if something is repeated, it's probably important, right? So if you read a passage and there's this word, and in this case, knowledge or know, and you go, okay, that must be important. He's trying to get some sort of point across. So what is this knowledge, and what does it have to do with 
the church. And what's more, where does the gospel message then come into play with that knowledge? Well, the first three verses, the first three verses are vital to our understanding the rest of chapter 8. It's what, if you, I'm not an English person, but it's the thesis. As he's laying it all down, this is what we're going to discuss through the rest of the chapter. Idol worship was central to the culture surrounding the, the church in Corinth. And one could assume that any food that was bought at the local market had been involved in some sort of pagan ritual or pagan sacrifice or pagan offering. There was some in the church who were willing to eat this food and others who were not. And so how should the church then as a whole, the church in Corinth, respond to this? Well, Paul gives two things which affect the response. The first one is knowledge, and the second one is love. So we're going to deal with the thesis first, and then we're going to take each one separately. So we know, Paul says, we know that all of us possess knowledge. All of us possess understanding. Well, knowledge about what? Knowledge concerning food offered to idols. This knowledge, he says, puffs up or makes one arrogant. It makes one think of themselves more highly than they ought to. But if anyone thinks that he knows something, he doesn't yet know what he ought to know. Do you know what that means? That's a lot of no's. It's a lot of no's. So this knowledge that both Paul and the Corinthians have can lead them to believe that they know more than they actually do know. Paul is speaking of doctrine, of God's teaching and understanding of food offered to idols. Now, knowledge of doctrines, the knowledge of the doctrines of God can be a double-edged sword. It is good to know God's teachings, but those teachings can also puff one up. It can make one arrogant. Now, don't, don't hear me wrong. Understanding the doctrines of God, understanding His teachings as given to us in His Word are vital to the maturity, to the mature spiritual growth of the Christian. If you want to grow in Christ without reading His Word or understanding His doctrine, you're only growing in yourself because you have become your own God. You are then deciding what you feel is right. So, understanding what does God say? What does he teach? There's some really hard stuff. I got to wrestle with this. I need to study this. And which is why here at Elm Creek, we have, we have Bible studies. We have a, a systematic theology study. We sing worship songs that actually make you think. What, is God, what does God actually teach us? So those songs that we just sang, we sang those so that we can have the right knowledge and understanding of God himself. How does he define himself, not how do I define him? And so God's teachings, they are good, they are right. They create healthy boundaries for us in our life as God's people. They enrich us, encourage us, convict us. They help us to defend the truth of the gospel message. But our tendency, just naturally as human beings, is to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. And it can go both ways. One, too much knowledge and not enough knowledge. We still think more highly than we ought to. But Paul is specifically speaking here of this too much knowledge, not too much knowledge, or knowledge that puffs up. 
Studying and knowing God's doctrines is good and right, but one should not imagine that he knows something when in actuality he's only touched the tip of the iceberg. In 1 Corinthians 13, ironically, the love chapter, this is what Paul says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. He's talking about when we actually get to heaven. We see in a mirror dimly here on earth. We don't see everything as we should. But man, it's going to be really clear when we get up there. And then he continues, now I, now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So he's looking ahead and Paul is speaking of how as the church they need to remain humble. The Corinthians think that they know about God, but they are too smart for their own good. And their knowledge has made them arrogant and blind to something that is vital to the life of the believer and to the life of the church, specifically love. This knowledge puffs up, Paul says, but love builds up. That's focused on other people. Knowledge puffs ourselves up, but love builds others up. But if anyone loves God, he says, he is known by God. Remember what I just read in 1 Corinthians 13? Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known by God. Our knowledge, our knowledge of God can lead lead us to be puffed up and self-focused, but God's knowledge of us leads us to love him and to build up the church of God, to build up fellow believers. And so, all right, so what, what is the right knowledge when it comes to food offered to idols? Because there's a very major word, and if, if you attend Monday night, what is that word? Very first word in chapter, uh, verse 4. It's a connecting word. It's what I call connectors. Come on, people. Therefore... See, if, you, if, you're, if you're like, what in the world does he talk about? Well, Monday nights we meet in here, we actually work through, we kind of talk about what the sermon was, but then we're working through a passage at a time, and we go way in depth. It's up on the whiteboard. We talk about the different, I call them connecting words. I guess they're called prepositions, something like that. Vinny, am I right in saying that? Is that what they're called? Uh, so I'm a math guy, okay? So so I call them connecting words. And this is one of the major words, therefore. You got to figure out what is that word, therefore. There's a reason why he puts it there. It tells us that because the previous verses are true, therefore, what is about to be said is true. And so because knowledge puffs up, therefore, this is true. Here is the right knowledge, Paul says. In the case of eating food offered to idols, we know, we understand what God teaches. He says an idol has no real existence. Idols cannot speak. Idols cannot hear. They cannot move. They are created by human beings and have no power to do anything. They have no existence in and of themselves. But it is also true, Paul says, that we have one God. There is only one God. There may be many so-called gods and lords in the world, these false gods, these false lords, these false idols, but for the Christian, there is only one God, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, who created all things and for whom we exist. 
The implication then of this right knowledge is that any food offered to an idol has not changed in its composition or purpose. It's just food. It has not been made unholy because it was offered to an inanimate object. It was created by the one God for his glory, so the Christian is free or has a right to eat of that food. Now, that is true. That is right. That is right knowledge of God's commands. But Paul is warning the Corinthians that they're missing something important. Verses 4 through 6 seem to be the stance of many within Corinth, but in light of verses 1 through 3, Paul's concern is that this right knowledge is causing them to become arrogant. They're forgetting and completely leaving out those brothers and sisters in Christ who do not possess that knowledge. Christ tells us that the greatest commandment in Scripture is love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. Now, some of the Corinthians are doing a fine job in living this out. And they should continue down that same path of loving God throughout their lives. But it seems that they've forgotten the second greatest commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The Corinthians need to be reminded that right knowledge, right knowledge of God, should drive them to right love. A love that builds up and edifies the church. Now, Don't hear me wrong. I am not saying that right knowledge of God is secondary to right love of neighbor. That is not what God's word teaches. You cannot truly love someone until you truly understand what it means to be loved by God or to love him. So we have to keep that in mind. Our love and knowledge of God should inform and affect how we love our neighbor. But Paul isn't speaking of just any neighbor. Again, he's speaking about the fellow brother or sister in Christ who doesn't possess that knowledge. Maybe they're young in their faith. Maybe they're immature spiritually. Maybe they've never been taught the truths of God in this area. Yes, the knowledge of verses 4 through 6 are right. It is a good knowledge, but there are some in the church in Corinth who, because of their former life of worshiping idols, they came out of paganism, they had weaker consciences. They were more morally sensitive when it came to food offered to idols. Okay, we'll call those, just for a sake, there's, this is a loaded phrase, but just for the sake of you know making things move along quicker, we're going to call them the weaker brother, the weaker and the stronger brother when it comes to conscience. These individuals, these weaker brothers, saw eating such food as tainting, corrupting, or dishonoring their morals, their stance before God. They saw it as a sin, in other words. Now, does eating food really defile one before God? No. And Paul even acknowledges that. He says, food will not commend us to God. We are not worse off if we do not eat. No better off if we do. He says that in verse 8. Now, that last sentence, though, that, that verse is actually directed not to the weaker brother, but to the stronger brother. 
We're not worse off if we do not eat the food offered to idols, but we're also not better off if we do. In other words, whether the stronger brother eats the food or not changes nothing. It is not a sin to eat the food, and it is not a sin to not eat the food. It is the stronger brother's right to eat that food, but he should take care that his right does not become a stumbling block to his weaker brother. How does that happen? Well, it seems, and I don't know if you caught this or not, it seems that the Corinthians were actually eating in the temple of an idol. Did you catch that? Now, Paul doesn't condemn or rebuke their eating in the temples. He, he doesn't even address it. So what's going on there? I don't know. Are they, are they actually worshiping idols? No, I don't think they are. Is it like a community meal that that's the biggest spot? So everybody gathered together and they're eating meal or eating meat that was offered to idols? We don't know. We're not told. The speculation and speculation is always dangerous when it comes to Scripture. But the fact that Paul does not rebuke them for eating in, in the temple, then that tells us that's a secondary issue. You don't even need to worry about that. So what's the primary issue? Well, if the weaker brother sees the stronger brother eating in an idol's temple, eating food offered to idols, he says, will he not be encouraged or emboldened or built up in a negative way, not in a positive way, a negative way, if his conscience is weak to eat food offer to idols. And so by the right knowledge of the stronger brother, the weaker brother is destroyed. And we'll get there. Basically, the stronger brother has made the weaker brother sin. And these are super strong words from Paul. What you are doing, Corinthians, stronger brother, is destroying your weaker brother. But this isn't the, first, the only place that he's, he's talked, used this language. Romans chapter 14, verse 15. If your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. You see how he's shifting it? Like we go, whoa, it's all my right, and we're going to get there too. This is my right to do this. And he's like, no, 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 your focus is wrong. This is a brother that Christ died for. This is a sister that Christ died for, and you're destroying them. Or Romans 14, verse 20, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God that is the believer. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. To cause a fellow believer in Christ, one for whom Christ died, to stumble and go against their conscience because of a freedom that will neither increase nor decrease one standing before God, is to sin against that brother. It is to wound them and is a sin against Christ himself, Paul says. Therefore, because of this, if food makes Paul's brother stumble, he will never eat meat. Now, Paul is not declaring himself a vegetarian. That is not his point. He's making the strongest possible statement that he would give up his freedom to eat meat for the sake of his brother. He does something, he does something similar when he's talking about the gospel, that he would, he would be in hell. Paul would rather be in hell forever if it meant every one of his Jewish brothers and sisters came to Christ and were saved. That's his heart. He's willing to give up his own eternal life in Christ to save 
his brothers and sisters. Here he holds that it would be better for him never to eat meat again than to sin against Christ for the sake of his own freedom. But I also don't believe that Paul would let that weaker brother remain in such a state of knowledge. Because love also means humbly and patiently teaching and guiding a fellow believer into the right knowledge of God. When I was growing up, my dad was a pastor. We were part of a church that never allowed alcohol. Like, never. Um, if it was, my dad would probably be censured or disciplined if, if alcohol was ever found um, in, in our fridge whatsoever. So I grew up, uh, what's the word, teetotaler? Is that what you say? Is that the, the correct way of saying it? Okay. Um, which is hilarious because my mom is German and she'd been drinking wine since she was like five or something like that. But it was all because of my dad's job. And, 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 but I grew up like, this is, this is not good. This is not good. This is not good. I was the weaker brother. And it wasn't until I um, got in, engaged to, to my wife, to Katie, that I would go to church with her family to a Lutheran church where they had communion and they had wine. Oh, okay, we've got some over there. We've got wine, and I just, I refused to even take communion because I, I was such a strong, that was where I was. And it was conversations with people um, that I trusted, that I, I, I was getting convicted of this because what I was doing was actually having an effect on um, my, my wife's parents. Not that they were looking down on me. They just thought it was strange and they couldn't understand. And then I'd give them reasoning for it and it really wasn't biblical. It was all because it's bad. And after a while, I finally decided, I said, okay, the next time I go there, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take, take communion. And I took communion. It was the worst tasting wine in the world, I'm sure. But it had an effect on my, my father-in-law in the sense that he says, I noticed that you took communion today. Why? And I got an opportunity to tell him why. I had give, put myself in the position where I was weak. I was the weaker brother. It was against my conscience to drink any kind of alcohol. And people who drank alcohol, I looked down on them. And I'm not even talking like people who got drunk. I'm like, hey, you had wine at communion? Like, how dare you? And then as I had brothers and sisters come alongside me and go, you understand you're condemning Christ because he drank alcohol, right? That was probably the thing that got me over the hump. But how easily we forget to love because of this knowledge that we think we have. So how, how should this affect us as the church today? Right knowledge of God is necessary. Again, it's good, and it should be pursued until the day we die or Christ takes us. I love studying the Word of God. I love working through it every day. I mean, it's working through a passage every week. If you've never done that and then preached on it, it is the most humbling experience because God exposes you to His Word. It's so good. It's so right. And I love knowing and understanding and studying and being convicted by God's word. But we must be careful that our knowledge does not cause us to neglect our love of others. 
Knowledge of God and love of others are never separate. The world tells us that love is full acceptance and celebration of any lifestyle one may seem fit to live, but that is actually not true love. God's word calls our sinful lifestyles, calls out sinful lifestyles, which demean God's commands and outright reject him and his truths. He says that is not good. True love will call people who live lives of repentance or to live lives of repentance of their sins and to have faith in Christ alone. Your identity is not found in your worldly lifestyle. Your identity is found in Christ. If you are a child of God, if you are a believer. And in the church, true love means letting go of our freedoms for the sake of a brother or sister. Now, I'm not saying, well, I'm not going to study God's word because my brother or sister, you know, they're, they're upset when they say, well, what well, the Bible says, that's on them. That's on them. But love means patiently, lovingly, caringly, walking with them. In my last church, it was a uh, uh, non-alcohol church, if you want to say it. Okay, in my younger years, I would have been right at home. By the time that I had actually become the pastor of that church, um, things had changed. I had had that moment of clarity going, oh my gosh, this is, this is a struggle um, that I need to wrestle with. And, and, and in having conversations with the leadership, I had uh, at one point gone to them and I said, um, we're, it's a small town of 300 people, 350 people. I think they're counting the cats and the dogs. Small town. Where do the unbelievers go? Because supposedly everyone goes to church, which was not true. But everyone believed. Everybody goes to church. I said, well, okay, if you have unbelievers, where do they go? And they go to the bar. They go to the local bar. And so I asked my leaders, I said, I want to go to the bar weekday afternoon Go have lunch there. I won't drink any alcohol, but I'm just going to order lunch. I'm going to sit at the bar, and I'm going to build relationships. I don't want to do that on a weekly basis just so I can get to know these unbelievers. And I had a leader come up to me, and he says, I, I, I see your heart, and I respect that. He goes, but that would cause more problems than good, which was really frustrating to me. But as I was working through this this week, that, that story came to mind They were the weaker brother. They saw alcohol as this massive negative that if the pastor was seen drinking alcohol, uh, I don't know what people would reject the church or they get mad and leave the church. I, I don't know. But I'm thinking like, well, then unbelievers would see that because it's not a sin. And, and in fact, I wasn't even drinking alcohol, but being associated even with that bar would cause people within the church, these weaker brothers or sisters, it would go against their conscience. Some of them might even join me. And the church did not see that as necessarily a good thing. It would cause people maybe even to sin in their minds. Now, I could have fought that tooth and nail. I could have pulled out scripture and I could have shown all my knowledge of these things. But the reality is that's where they were. 
And I knew it was going to take a long time, like you're talking 20 years of being in that church in order to change that culture and that mindset, that patiently walking and loving the people in my church through that. They weren't evil people. They weren't ungodly people. They were just weaker conscience people who loved God and loved his word and loved his gospel. Now, unfortunately, I was only there for six and a half years, so the 20 years never came. But that's the mindset, and you could think of things like that in your own life. I had a freedom. I could have very well gone right to that bar, never ordered alcohol, just did it despite the, leaders, the leadership saying don't do it. I had that right. It is not a sin, except for when I disobey my leaders because of their weak conscience. We have to be careful that we don't allow our knowledge to make us arrogant thinking that we know more than we actually do know. God knew the hearts, knows the hearts of the people around us in this church. He knows we're, and maybe we should just be honest, some of us have weak consciences in one area and others have weak consciences in others. Christian, though, must never divorce knowledge of God with love of our fellow believers in Christ. We are to love one another in our weaknesses, striving to teach and encourage one another to grow into spiritual maturity, to understand the doctrines of God, and to love one another more deeply. We're to be careful not to let our freedoms to cause a brother or sister to stumble in their faith especially those freedoms which do not bring us closer to or move us further away from God. Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, all things are lawful for me. In this case, I can eat whatever. But then he says, but not all things are helpful. Just because I am free to do it does not mean that it does not affect the people around me. And that it is helpful to them. And so God is calling us as his people here at Elm Creek to keep our pride in check and to love and edify our fellow believers. We should strive to live in such a way as to avoid causing them to stumble in their faithfulness to God. Now my hope and my prayer is that none of us have to deal with that. (laughs) That that, yeah, maybe we get frustrated with, with someone in the church and we go well that's ridiculous but can we show them grace and and my hope and my prayer is that is that they do that we do show each other grace that we do love each other we walk with each other and we edify each other and so before we eat the bread and we drink the cup for communion now christ says examine your heart paul says god says through paul and And uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, where he says, or 11, where you need to examine your own heart, examine, uh, is there any sin that you have before God? And yes, I think we should do that. Absolutely, we should do that. But in addition for today, examine our own hearts. Is there something we're holding on to, a freedom that we have that is affecting our brother, another brother or sister in Christ. 
Are we willing to abstain from something that doesn't diminish or increase our standing before God for the sake of my brother, for the sake of my sister? Are we willing to love our fellow believers with the same love that, that Christ showed us? Because can we be honest, Christ gave, got rid of his, he gave up his freedoms. He humbled himself. He left his throne in heaven so that he could die upon the cross for us. No greater love has anyone than to give up his life for his brother. Christ giving up his freedom did not diminish him. It did not make him any less God. But it is his example to us. His humility and his love for his people, for his brothers and sisters. He willingly gave up his freedom to show them the gospel and the truths of who God is because he taught his disciples how to rightly love their neighbor in light of a right knowledge of God. And so when we, we take communion together, use this time to confess your sins. If you have any sins between you and God, confess them to him. If you have a sin between a brother or a sister, confess that. Are you holding on to a freedom that you have so that you can be right? And in the meantime, you're destroying a brother or sister in Christ. Confess that to God. And then if you have to, confess that to your brother or sister. And I'm not saying afterwards. I mean like now. Why wait? You say, well, that's going to be embarrassing. What's more important, being embarrassed before people or sinning against the Lord? So use this time. Use this time to confess your sins. Use this time to confess your sin against a brother or a sister and wrestle with the question, how can I love and edify my fellow believers using the knowledge of God, not as a weapon, but as a salve that makes one's faith stronger in the Lord? Can we love and be patient with our brothers and sisters in Christ, just as Christ was loving and patient towards us. So when we come together, when we make the line, you grab the cup, you grab the bread, and you sit down, you have that time of quiet, the time of reflection. Celebrate what Christ did. But it's more than a celebration. It is a, a testimony. This is Christ's testimony. I loved you. Now go love others. Go love your neighbor. Go love your fellow believer in Christ. Not for your own sake. So that your brother or sister in Christ can grow in him. So when you are ready, make your line. We'll come and sit down and then together as a family, we will take communion together. So come when you are ready.